And turn in your Bibles to Psalm 120. We begin our new series in the Ascent Psalms. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 120. Before we, I do an official introduction to the Ascent Psalms, let me explain why we are doing this series now. If you've been at Grace for a while, then you know back in the summer of 2013, we did a series in the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 12, called The Soundtrack of Our Lives. And then two years later, in the summer of 2015, we picked up where we left off and we did a series called Transmissions from the Satellite Heart that took us through Psalms 13 through Psalm 24. And because it's 2017, two years later, it seemed like a natural thing to do another series in the Psalms. However, it's not summer yet. So you may be wondering, why are we doing this series now? The answer is because I will not be here this summer. I will be taking a sabbatical. Per our sabbatical policy, the elders have graciously granted me a three-month sabbatical beginning June 1st. So my family and I will be gone this summer, most likely in Texas and Oklahoma, visiting family and friends where I plan to do a lot of fishing, and I plan on drinking a lot of sweet tea, and when we're here in Santa Maria for a portion of that, I hopefully plan to do a lot of paintings. I would like to do that. I just don't have time for that anymore. So we're doing this series in the Psalms now because I will not be here for uh, the summer, and instead of picking up with Psalm 25, I decided that we would spend the next several months looking at the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. Now, I actually ended up changing the sermon graphic and the title for this series because inspiration hit me in the middle of the night last week. So I've titled this series, Films for radio, and that's what the Ascent Psalms are. They are these, these little films, these little videos, these little movies, these little snapshots about what life was like in ancient Israel. Now, just so you know, to help our children, on the back of your sermon notes page, there's also a page here, a guide to help children engage the Psalms of Ascent. So here's an opportunity for you later this week sometime to walk with your children through uh, the Psalms of of Ascent, specifically Psalm 120 this week. Now, there's actually a structure to the 15 Psalms that make up the Psalms of Ascent. They fall into five groups of So this is the pattern that you'll find as you make your way through these psalms. The first psalm that you'll encounter in each of the three sets exposes a difficulty that someone is facing. And then the second psalm in each set focuses on God's power to keep his people. And then the third psalm in each set focuses on worshiping God in Zion, worshiping God in Jerusalem. And so that's how the psalms of ascent are structured, and that's the journey that the ancient Israelites would go on as they were journeying to Jerusalem to worship. They were singing about their difficulties, and then they would sing about Yahweh's power to intervene, and then they would sing about worshiping Yahweh in Jerusalem. And that's not a bad pattern to follow, is it? Can you imagine how your life would change 
By expressing your difficulties and expressing your problems to God and then rehearsing God's power to intervene and save you and then worshiping God? It kind of sounds like prayer, doesn't it? Tell God about your problems. Talk to God about his power to answer your prayers and to solve your problems. And then what does that lead to? It leads to worship. See, the Psalms of Ascent are very practical. And the average length of the the Ascent Psalms is just, just under seven verses, with Psalm 132 providing the most glaring exception because it has 18 verses. So these are mostly just short. They're short films that deal with folksy issues like family life and work and travel and brotherly love and social standing. And they are a collection of songs that the nation of Israel would sing as they journeyed and made their pilgrimage to worship in Jerusalem. So these are road trip songs. These are the songs that the worshipers would sing as they made their way toward Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that the Mosaic Law commanded every Israelite to make three pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year. First, they would go for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, in the spring. The second feast that they would travel for would be in early summer. That was the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the fall, they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Now, of course, any Israelite could travel to Jerusalem anytime they wanted to, to worship, but they were required by the law to make these three pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh every year at these three major festivals. And the Ascent Psalms were the songs that these Israelites would sing as they ascended and made their way to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. These are songs for the road. These are road trip songs. These are the songs that were on the mixtapes that they would pop into the cassette player and listen to in their cars as they drove to Jerusalem. And here's what I love about the Psalms, and I suspect it's what most people love, and it's why you love the Psalms, because the Psalms are real. They pull no punches. You feel them in your bones. The Psalms help us feel truth, and they express what we might never say or sing in the church. And that's why we love them, because these Psalms resonate with our hearts, and that's why we love the Psalms, and the Psalms of Ascent are no exception. And we will begin our journey in Psalm 120 today, in what feels like a faraway land, surrounded by liars and deceivers, and we will end the journey through the Psalms of Ascent, landing at that place of blessing, worshiping Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem in Psalm 134. So the Psalms of Ascent are the soundtrack for this journey that we are on in this life. As pilgrims in this world, We are making our way, as Hebrews 12 says, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're making our way there where we will glorify and enjoy the triune God forever and ever. But you know this from experience. It's a rough passage through turbulent waters to get there, right? 
but it's the journey we must take. And these songs are the songs that are playing in the car as we drive toward the new Jerusalem to be with Jesus forever. These are the films for radio. So turn to Psalm 120 if you haven't, and this is what we'll discover today, that God cheers when he hears our wobbly, unsteady, rough around the edges prayers. God cheers when he hears our wobbly, unsteady, rough around the edges prayers. And I'm getting that also from Psalm 15, 8, which says that the prayer of the upright pleases him. The prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The, the Hebrew word is, it, it brings him pleasure. Christian, your prayers, because you are in union with Christ, bring God the Father pleasure. When you pray, it brings him joy. It brings him pleasure. Even when we bring wobbly, unsteady, rough around the edges prayers. And so why does God cheer when we come to him this way? Why do our prayers give him pleasure? Because it shows our dependence on him. We come with words and phrases and requests, and we're just simply asking God to handle it, to take care of it. That's prayer. And sometimes those prayers are rough around the edges. They are wobbly and unsteady. They aren't pristine prayers. They aren't pretty prayers, but they are prayers, real prayers, which we bring to our Heavenly Father because we realize that we cannot do anything. And that glorifies God. And it causes him to cheer when he sees his children come and pour out whatever is on their hearts, even when it ain't pretty. And that's exactly what we see the psalmist do in Psalm 120. He just dumps it all out. And it ain't pretty. You won't find his prayer on a plaque hung in the living room. No one is making coffee cups with his prayer on it. But maybe we should. Maybe we don't make coffee cups or plaques with Psalm 20 on it because we don't understand prayer or we don't understand the God to whom we are praying. Maybe we should have Thomas Kincaid-type paintings with the words, shoot their tongues with arrows, Lord, in a pretty font hanging on our walls. That just might be closer to the heart of God than we realize. So look at verse 1. And when you hear me refer to Yahweh, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's letting us know that this is God's covenant name in Hebrew. It's Yahweh. So when you hear me speak of Yahweh, I'm, I'm talking about the triune God that we love and worship, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Look at verse 1, Psalm 120. Hear the word of Yahweh. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Yahweh, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war." 
And so we begin our journey, and it does not start well, does it? The psalmist, whoever he is, is in distress. This is not a nice three-minute pop song that's catchy. This song starts off with trouble, and we end the psalm with war. The psalmist is surrounded by people who are lying about him. They are spreading rumors about him online. They are deceiving people. Have you ever been there? Ever have someone totally make up lies about you and spread rumors? I'm sure you have. And that's why Psalm 120 might become your new favorite psalm. But this is not a nice, a nice little psalm. He starts off by acknowledging that universal truth. Haters gonna hate. He starts off by acknowledging that universal truth that he knows so well. Haters gonna hate. But unlike Taylor Swift, he can't shake it off. These people have got him worked up. And what he asks God to do to his enemies in this song might surprise you. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I said that he begins by acknowledging his haters, but actually the psalmist acknowledges the Lord. He acknowledges Yahweh first. He tells us in verse 1 about a previous experience where the Lord heard and answered his prayer. Now, we don't know what the experience was, but the psalmist tells us in verse 1 that it was an awful time. He says that he was distressed. And the Hebrew word that he uses here has the idea of being boxed in. The idea of being backed into a corner, having nowhere to go, of being trapped, being cramped, being restricted, tied up, and bound. You get the idea. It's a claustrophobic person's nightmare. He's in a bind. And this is the same word that's used in 2 Kings chapter 6, when there were too many prophets living in that apartment and it was a little too cramped and they wanted to chop down a tree and make an extra room, the floating axe head incident, this is the idea. They were too cramped. Too many people living in that one-bedroom apartment. It's the same word that's used to describe Joseph when his brothers threw him down into that pit. He was trapped. He had nowhere to go. And so we begin, and the psalmist is recalling a time when he was overwhelmed, when he was distressed, when life was pressing in on him. He's he's under pressure, he's cramped, and he felt like he couldn't move. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? Where you're boxed in, you're trapped, you can't move, there's nowhere to go. That's the psalmist as he begins. But it's what he does in this moment that is instructive for us. He called out to the Lord. He cried out to Yahweh. In fact, in the Hebrew, this is where the emphasis lies. Verse 1 actually begins in Hebrew this way. To Yahweh in my distress I cried. To Yahweh in my distress I cried. There's the emphasis. It's to Yahweh. He begins by saying, to Yahweh. And the reason he writes the first verse of his song and recalls a time when he was previously distressed and how Yahweh answered his prayer is because he wants to build up his faith right now because he's distressed right now. In other words, he's in the same boat again. He's trapped. Once again, he has found himself. He's boxed in. He's backed into a corner. He's trapped. He's cramped. He's restricted. He's tied up. He's bound. And that's no fun. 
That's not a fun place to be. But don't miss the miracle that's here in verse one. The sovereign God of the universe listens to our prayers. Don't read over verse one too fast. Slow down and meditate and think on that. Don't take this truth for granted. Be flabbergasted by that truth. Please stop and think about the innumerable number of times that this has happened in your life. Think about the innumerable number of times that God has heard and answered your prayers. It's amazing if you stop and think about it. Think about the thousands of times that you have cried out to God and He answered you. How many times? Thousands upon thousands of times? We have prayed and cried like that and He listened and he answered just like that. And you know what? It was pleasing to him. It's pleasing to him. And you know what? There's more to come. Plenty more. Never lose sight of this wonderful gospel truth. God hears our cries. And that ought to give you goosebumps and it ought to make your jaw drop. And so the next time you're backed against the wall and you feel trapped by some situation, remind yourself of the innumerable number of ways that God has answered your prayers in the past and just start praying and just start pouring your heart out. Are you painted in a corner? Ponder the past and then pour your heart out and then patiently watch God provide. But notice here also that the psalmist doesn't first go to a friend or to a pastor when he's in this predicament. He goes straight to Yahweh. He doesn't go online. He doesn't subtweet about his enemies. He's being slandered. And he doesn't open his mouth except to talk to the Lord. Commenting on this psalm, Martin Luther said this, Silence to man and prayer to God are the best cures for the evil of slander. Silence to man and prayer to God are the best cures for the evil of slander. And Martin Luther Luther experienced plenty of slander in his day. So there's some wisdom for you from the year 1531 when you're being slandered and lied about. Silence to man, prayer to God. And I think it still works in 2017. But we often reverse that, don't we? For us, it's silence to God and talking to man. That's usually our MO. But the psalmist in 120 doesn't do that. Now, why? Because he knows something about Yahweh. He has experienced something. The last time he was boxed in, the last time he was distressed, he cried out to Yahweh and Yahweh answered him. That's proof that God cheers when we bring our rough around the edges prayer to him because he answered the psalmist's prayer. The psalmist knows that the Lord heard his cry. He knows that Yahweh listens to his prayers. He knows that haters going to hate and the Lord's going to listen. Haters going to hate and the Lord's going to listen. And if you know God, you will pray. Let that sink in for a moment. If you know God, you will pray. 
D.A. Carson, in a book that the elders and a group of men are going through right now, said this. The nature and character of God become for Paul the fundamental ground for intercessory prayer. The more we reflect on the kind of God who is there, the kind of God who has disclosed himself in Scripture and supremely in Jesus Christ, the kind of God who has revealed his plans and purposes for his own household, the kind of God who hears and answers prayers, the more we shall be encouraged to pray. Prayerlessness is often an index to our ignorance of God. Real and vital knowledge of God not only teaches us what to pray, but gives us a powerful incentive to pray. Prayerlessness is often an index to our ignorance of God. And that's a tough sentence to hear, isn't it? Of course, his point is that we may have temporary amnesia and we may temporarily be forgetting what we do know about God, You can know a lot about God, but still not pray. And this is what I think many of us do when we do get boxed in and trapped. How easy it is to get distressed and not pray, which is very stupid if you think about it. Yes, at times, we are idiots. You know, what if we change the name of this church to Idiot Baptist Church? I bet people would come. I bet they would come. You say, you know, we're idiots. We're sheep. We're dumb. We do stupid things. We serve the God in the universe. And when we get distressed, we don't cry out to him most of the time. Let's change our name to Idiot Baptist Church. People will show up. We are children of the sovereign God. And sometimes we don't pray. And that's stupid. Martin Luther, in his commentary on this psalm, said this about how hard it is to pray sometimes. He says, to read the word, to hear the word, and to teach the word are indeed excellent and heavenly works which require the help and aid of the Holy Ghost. But the inward practice of faith, so to turn unto the Lord, so to pray, so to presume of God's favor that thy prayer shall please him and that he will hear the same, this is a hard matter indeed. Martin Luther is saying that it is hard to pray. And this coming from the man who started his morning by praying for three hours every day. He is reported to have said, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. He knew from experience that it was hard to pray. But I think Martin Luther would tell you this if he were here. He would say, it is hard to pray, but you know what? God cheers when he hears our wobbly, unsteady, rough-around-the-edges prayers. Luther would tell you, you need to fight to pray. He would tell you not to try and get the words right. He would just tell you, get the words out. He would tell you that it's okay if your prayers are wobbly and unsteady. It's okay if if your prayers are rough-around-the-edges. Just get get it out. And knowing God's character that it does bring him joy when his children pray, that's what enabled the psalmist to pray the way he does in Psalm 120. The psalmist knew Yahweh's character, and he prayed. Of course, that doesn't take away the sting of living in a fallen world. That doesn't take away the pain that we experience, but it does give us hope. Clearly, the psalmist feels the sting of what his enemies are saying about him, because of what he prays in verses 
praise in verses 2 through 3. This is no safe Sunday school prayer. This is a prayer by a man who knows what Yahweh is like. Look at verse 2. Deliver me, O Yahweh, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Yahweh is no tame God. The psalmist knows that. He knows that God hates lying lips. He knows what Proverbs 6 says. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that Yahweh hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And so the psalmist here prays in line with the character of Yahweh. He prays in line with God's word. He prays that Yahweh would shut their lying mouths. But he doesn't say it that nice. He actually says, stick arrows through their tongues, Lord. That will shut them up. Burn their tongues with hot coals. Pierce their tongues and give them a speech impediment. Christian, you do not pray to a wimp. You do not pray to a God with soft hands that smell like strawberry lotion. You pray to a God who has calluses on his hands. And this is why it is so important to know theology, to know doctrine, to know God. The psalmist knows that God hates deceit and God hates lies. And so he prays to Yahweh and asks him to take care of his enemies, the ones who are spreading lies about him. We must know what God is like if we are able to pray accurately. We must know the God to whom we are praying. And the psalmist knows of Yahweh, and so he directs his prayers to him. The psalmist is instructing us on how to pray when life stinks, when life is hard. He says, number one, know who God is and what he is like. And number two, tell him what's troubling you. Does it bother you to pray this way? Does it make you uncomfortable? Understand that the only way that the psalmist is going to be delivered from these people is if he prays this way. He can't stop this smear campaign on his own. Stuff's already out there on the internet. He can't delete that stuff. It's been retweeted. It's gone viral. All he can do is pray. And he doesn't pray that his enemies would get a job in another town either. He prays that Yahweh would deal with them. He can't have any peace until these guys are taken out. Listen, if you want prayer to be all rosy and kind, then you won't like the Psalms. You might as well leave this book because it does not hold anything back. Prayer has to be tough. Prayer has to wear a leather jacket. Prayer has to drive a Harley and wear brass knuckles. Why? Because prayer has to deal with evil. Prayer has to deal with the evils that exist in this world. Prayer has to drive into the rough parts of town. And so in prayer, we are asking God to deal with the evil that we hate and to deal with the evil that he hates. And no one ever prays that their enemies get a pass, do they? No one prays like this. Well, they are kind of nice people, Lord. 
They do keep their lawn well manicured. How about this, God? Let's send them on a nice vacation and put them up in a luxury hotel for a week. Just get them out of my life. No. When people are spreading lies about you, you pray something like, stick an arrow through their tongue. Burn their tongues with hot coals. Figuratively, or because I'm a sinner, literally, Lord, just deal with them, Jesus. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you should probably skip over the Psalms in your Bible reading because there's a whole bunch of those Psalms that are not going to let you walk past them without them getting in your face and saying, deal with me. Actually, the entire Old Testament won't let you get away from it. In fact, you probably won't like the New Testament either. Because what does Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 1? The suffering that the Thessalonians were going through, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you were also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed." Of course, that doesn't mean that we're called to be jerks, okay? It doesn't mean that if your neighbor's dog barks at night, that you pray that an arrow would be shot through your neighbor's tongues. Maybe the dog, maybe you pray an arrow would be shot through his tongue. Oh, you dog lovers are going to send me emails, aren't you? I need the cat lovers to rally around me. Yes, we are called to love our enemies. Jesus said that. Yes, absolutely. Our hearts should break that people don't know Jesus. Our hearts should break that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 will be true of people who don't repent and trust in Jesus. But also, we are not to be mats that are just to be walked over by our enemies. We can pray that God, in his wisdom and with his justice, would deal with them. And so the psalmist here is saying to his enemies, you open your mouth and spread lies about me and I will open my mouth and converse with the God of truth. You spread lies, I'm going to talk to the God of truth. His enemies' words are like nails on a chalkboard to him and he wants it to stop. And so he prays and he asks God to shut their mouths, to put an end to the slander. He wants Yahweh to rough them up. And so he leaves it to God. But that doesn't take away the fact that he still lives in a fallen world that cannot give him peace. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. He's surrounded by people who hate peace. They lie. They deceive, and when the psalmist speaks and tries to bring peace into a situation, they want war, they want drama, they want fighting. It's as if he's saying he's far away from home and living in a foreign land. He feels like a sojourner, possibly alone, at home in Israel. The wicked here may be fellow Israelites who act like 
foreign barbarians. That's what I think. He's surrounded by Israelites who are Israelite in name only. Israelites who act like barbarians. And in verse 5, he mentions these two places that were outside of Israel. Meshech was in the far north and Kadar was in the Syro-Arabian desert. So these two places are too far apart on the map to be the place where the psalmist actually is and lives at the moment. Metaphorically, they suggest being far from home, out in the wilds of this world, out in the rough edges. And so the psalmist is saying that he's a sojourner, if you will. He is surrounded by people who hate peace. He is a sojourner and a foreigner in his own land. And he says it's like living among barbarians or cavemen. And the Hebrew in verse 7 actually sounds like he speaks like a caveman. Literally, the Hebrew in verse 7 is, I peace they for war. I peace they for war. The psalmist is saying that he's surrounded by these people who act like barbarians, act like cavemen. And so he says, like a caveman, I peace they war. Kind of like that old 60s show, It's About Time, starring uh, Imogene Coca. Do you remember that show? It's About Time, It's About Space. Anybody? Nobody remembers that show? There we go. We got a couple. Time travel, sci-fi, cavemen. Excellent show. Only 26 episodes, though. That's him here, like the cavemen on that show that would speak. He's eyepiece they wore. Jesus was not immune to this kind of stuff. Jesus had to deal with cavemen who spread lies. Jesus experienced a lot of Psalm 120 during the incarnation, but he kept entrusting himself to God, as Peter says. So hear the good news of the gospel again this morning. Soak this up this morning. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think about this. Jesus did everything right. He never sinned once. That should give us goosebumps. That should cause our jaw to drop open. Think about that. Jesus never sinned once. He was perfect. And yet he couldn't stop what people thought of him or the lies that they spread about him. Now, in one sense, he could have because he's the sovereign God of the universe. But Jesus did everything right. He was perfect. He never sinned. And he couldn't stop what people thought about him or the lies that they spread about him. And neither can we. So stop trying to control what people think about you and what they say about you and just pray. Stop trying to control what people think of you because you cannot control what they think of you. Stop trying to control what people say about you because you can't control that. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. And people ran their mouth about him and had these uh, ideas about him that were clearly not true. So we should stop trying to control what people think about us and what they say about us, and we should just pray. That's where the freedom is. Let me ask you this morning. Don't you want to be free from the fear of man 
free from expending all of your energy trying to control what people think, control what they say about you. That's exhausting. The gospel offers you this freedom. Jesus offers you this freedom today, right now. And so here's the bottom line of Psalm 120. Life is hard. It is not easy, and there are no easy answers. We will inevitably be surrounded by people that irk us, that say things about us, that slander us, that lie about us. There will be difficulties. There will be drama. There will be hardships. There will be trouble. We will feel lost. We will feel like aliens. We will feel like foreigners in this world. But that's who we are. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are exiles on a journey home. And so that means that you're not going to feel fully at home in this world, not until Jesus makes it new. It is your home. This world is your home. Understand that. This world is your home, just not this version of it. Jesus is going to come back and make this world new. So this world is your home, just not this version of it. We're waiting and we're on a pilgrimage and a sojourn to the city that is to come when he makes everything new. So the only place that really feels like home in this world, the only place that really feels like home is here with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church. And that's what the psalmist longs for here, to be with the community of God, to be with people that love Yahweh and want to glorify and enjoy him forever, not these people who are Israelite in name only and spread lies and want war and drama. He wants to be with the people of God. He wants to get to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh with the people of God. And so the Ascent Psalms start off at the very beginning with the reality of living in a fallen world. Being sick of this sin-sick world is how this journey begins. It's dark, it's tough, it's raw. It's not a sweet song, but it starts the journey. It, it gets us going. There's no pretense with Psalm 120. You know from the get-go that we are on a rugged pilgrimage to the city that is to come. But Psalm 20 also tells us right off the bat, that we are not alone. We hear the good news right away in verse one, that Yahweh is with us, Emmanuel, Jesus is with us, and that he hears us and he listens to us. At the beginning of the journey, we are reminded that God cheers when he hears our wobbly, unsteady, rough around the edges prayers. So take a cue from the psalmist here. Just pour your heart out to God. Just come messy. Come with your problems. Jesus wants us to come to him without pretense. Do you know that? Jesus wants you to go to him, to come to him without pretense. No masks. No faking. Jesus doesn't want you to be something that you aren't. He wants the real you. The troubled you. The scared you. The worried you. The angry you. The messy you. He wants us to simply come to him as we are, children. I read it last night, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. We're children. 
What do children do? Children just rush into their parents, and they have no regard for whatever's happening, do they? No regard for what you're doing. You could be holding a scalding hot cup of coffee, and there'll be a kid that just runs up on you, right? Someone's experienced that. We all have. They don't worry about trying to get their requests right, do they? They don't come and say, Daddy's got a hot cup of coffee. Daddy, I'm going to make this right. They just come in and say, I want donuts! They just blurt it out. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's just telling God what's on his heart. So just tell God what's on your heart, what's on your mind, the burdens that are weighing you down. Jesus came for sinners who are messy and who keep messing up because we're children, we're sheep, we're dumb, we're idiots. But he welcomes our messy prayers because they bring him pleasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you welcome us. You welcome our prayers, God. They're not, sometimes they're not even theologically accurate, God. They just come from hearts that are hurting. Sometimes we don't even come to you, God. We just kind of internalize it, try to do it ourselves, Father. But thank you that you welcome us as we are. Without pre- you want us to come without pretense, no masks, no faking, just you want the real us. And Lord, there are people here today who are suffering greatly. They feel boxed in, distressed. May they recall the innumerable times that you have answered them. You've heard their prayer. You've intervened. You've come through for them. May they reflect on that. and May that give them the hope and the courage and the faith to believe that even right now what they're going through, that you're listening and you're going to carry them through. May we remember that you are with us, Father. Help us, we ask, even to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.